Good morning. My name's Anya, and myself and my husband, Pete, we have two children. Only one of us has joined us today. She got a better offer to go in with her grandparents to our Northampton site. But so we've been dumped. I think she, at six, she's already turned into a teenager. But, but yeah, we're, it's a pleasure to be with you. Both Pete and I are on staff at Central Vineyard, and we work over in the Northampton site. And I lead and am responsible for the Compassion Ministry, which is a separately registered charity called Restore Northampton. So that takes up my daytime work. Um, and both of us are involved with the church. So, yes, yeah, a pleasure to be with you. It's lovely to see some new faces um, each time we come over each month, see the congregation growing. So that's really great. I, If anybody is on the preaching team, they'll know that this should be Pete standing up here. And Pete doesn't look like this. He preached for me last week in Northampton when it was supposed to be me because I literally lost my voice um, on the Friday, couldn't speak. So we've done a swap. So if you were looking forward to hearing Pete, you could listen to the podcast from last week and then rate him on that. So we're going to leave you in suspense of, of what that was like. But we are in a series called More Than a Name. And today we're looking at abounding in love and faithfulness. Taking time over these few weeks, we're looking at Exodus 34 and taking time over these few weeks to explore who God really is and that he is more than a name. We previously, in 2008, did a series at Central Vineyard called God Has a Name. So God gives himself lots of different names, particularly through the Old Testament. We can see lots of different names and descriptions of God. And if you'd be interested in that, I'd encourage you to look back at the podcasts for God Has a Name. But through this, we're actually looking deeper of why not only does God say who he is, but also his characteristics. What does he say about himself? And if we're made in his image, what should that or does that say about us? And we might be a long way off, or we might think that we're very close. I certainly don't think I'm very close to our God-given identity. But through knowing the character of God, then we can begin to know him more and begin to see these fruits in our own lives and journey towards what God wants us to be. And so as we join Exodus 34, just the backstory of this is Moses is on the, on the mountain. He's been interceding for Israel. They've been wandering around in the desert for years and years. And, you know, he's with a chosen people that have messed up time and time again. And he's calling out to God. We know that he meets God in this secret, quiet place. But he's calling out to him and saying, show me your glory. And God essentially says, I'll do better than that, Moses. I'll tell you my name. I'll show you exactly who I am. And over the last few weeks, we've been going through these verses line by line. So let's read again. Maybe you've got it earmarked in your Bibles, or it'll be up on the screen behind me as well. So Exodus 34, 6 to 7. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and stood there with him, and he called out his own name, Yahweh. The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out, Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And sometimes we can forget actually how groundbreaking this moment was. So God from the high heavens has come down and met with this man. He's come down, revealed himself, and said, this is who I really am. And he wants to set himself apart from the other gods in the, and in the culture, the things that other people worshipped. And he wanted to turn things completely on his head and said, I am different and I'm going to reveal myself to you. 
And we might take for granted this free access to God. Not only do we have the Bible to know all about God and to, and to really explore that, but also we know that when Jesus came to earth, we got to see what God was like in human flesh living amongst us. And when Jesus died and that temple curtain was torn in two, and it, the one that was separating the holy men from, from God and everybody else from, from God completely, actually that meant that we had free access to God without ritual or ceremony or position. And then he left us the Holy Spirit. So we continually meet with God and get God revealing himself to us. So we can become a bit sort of blasé about this and brush over this momentous moment. But this was a turning point in history. God really wanting to show himself to man, wanting to meet with man. And this had never happened in the same way before. And it's God's heart and it always has been. And it echoes of God walking alongside Adam and Eve. Obviously, that was the first time that God was with mankind, um, walking alongside them. And then there'd been this separation. And God in this moment is saying, I am more than a name. I'm more than a concept, more than an idol. I am a living, breathing, feeling, responding God. I am stirred by emotion. I'm motivated to action. And if you've listened to some of these talks across the series, we know that not only was he a God of compassion, but he was moved to act mercifully. He's stirred and connected to us. So here we find ourselves, if we can just imagine ourselves in this moment, hidden in that cleft in the rock because God was so powerful, so awesome, that he couldn't actually meet him fully face to face. And as God passes by, breathing out his name, I don't know whether somebody's covered this in previous weeks, but that Yahweh, the sound that that would have made if you'd said it in Hebrew, would be like the sound of a breath coming in and out. And so he's breathing out his name, breathing out his identity. God, I am truth, unchanging, steadfast, compassionate, merciful, full of grace, patient, just, righteous, holy, filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Wow. So what does it look like to be filled with, abounding in, overflowing in? If you've read this in your own Bibles, you might have had a different version that describes this unfailing love in different ways. Overflowing with love and faithfulness. And it's, it speaks of an intimate connection, a steadfast love, some call it, or a loving devotion, a familiar love, a pursuing love. And we're going to look at how these two words link together as I go on, the love and faithfulness. But first, let us just explore what each one means in its original context. And we know that our vocabulary is so limited compared to um, ancient Hebrew and, and all the other translations that it's gone through. And particularly the word love. I feel like it's, you know, we're so limited with what, what that one word can, can mean or it means so many different things. Most often in, in Hebrew, you'd find the word Ahava. Now, if anybody's a Hebrew scholar, you're going to be critical of me all the way through this sermon today. But I believe that's roughly how it's said, Ahava. Or this is the same word as Agape in Greek. And this is a spontaneous, impulsive, possessive love. And in the Old Testament, we see this written in this way about 250 times. And it's most often describing God's love for Israel. It's a really passionate love, fiercely loyal, 
like a, a parent or a spouse just fighting with a deep love. It speaks of a deep emotional stirring. And then there's another word for love that we find in other places through the Old Testament that is raham. And again, if you were in the talk about compassionate, um, compassionate mercy a few weeks ago, you might have had this translation, raham, which is a caring love. And it might be seen as sort of empathy or sympathy. It's a heart turning towards the vulnerable, evoking a response of mercy. So this is really when your heart breaks, that kind of love. And in fact, the response for that could be hesed, which is another form of love, which dis- which shows a deliberate choice of affection or kindness. So this is more like charity, a love born out of grace rather than earned. And this is where we're going to focus on today, because this is the word that's used in this verse, hesed. So actually, God uses different words through this through the whole of of Exodus 34. He says, he is the God of compassion, the raham, the love, and then he goes on to say that he is filled with hesed, absolute love and kindness. And actually, even with these simple words, they're then there's loads more behind them. And the Hebrew scholar Daniel Block said, hesed cannot be translated with one English word. This is a covenant term wrapped up in itself, all the positive attributes of God, love, covenant, faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty, In short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. So chesed isn't just love. It also includes all these other things too. Mercy, grace, kindness and loyalty. And it's a covenant between God and man. It's God's character from the beginning of time and it does not change. It tells us what God feels, but it also tells us what God does. Timothy Keller describes Hesed as an attitude of unconditional grace and compassion that leads to action. So it's not just a feeling, it's a behaviour. It intervenes, it rescues, it lifts up out of the miry pit. And Hesed is often paired with Mishpat, meaning justice. And that's the kind of justice that means freedom, not judgment. It's like a jubilee of wiping the debts clean, of freeing the prisoner even before the sentence has been served. So chesed cannot just be felt, it has to do. And it's the only attribute that's found twice in this chapter. First in verse 6, we read, he is abounding in love and faithfulness. And then straight away afterwards in verse 7, it says, he is maintaining love to thousands. In some verse, in some translations, it literally repeats itself. He is filled with unfailing love. It says the same thing in both verses. And when an ancient writer wanted to get his point across, he would say it twice. And in fact, I think I probably do this at home. I think I probably say things more than twice when I want to get the point across. I think Pete would probably call that nagging. Um, but you know, when you, when you want somebody to really understand what you're saying, you'll say it again and again, either in slightly different ways or the same way. And so this is obviously a critical phrase or a word that God really wants us to understand. John Markoma, who wrote a book that we've been basing this series on, says, This is one of the truest things about Yahweh. He's abounding. He is spilling over way past capacity in hesed. So God's love, his hesed love, his grace is limitless. And if you've read the book that was written quite a few years ago by Philip Yancey, What's So Amazing About Grace, one of the things that stuck out from that, he says, there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more. And there is nothing you can do to make God love you any less. This is hesed love. 
if we don't grasp this fully for ourselves, if we don't get a complete revelation of this grace and love, then if we share it with others, we're only sharing our head knowledge. I remember a few years ago, a couple of years ago, I went to a conference in Northern Ireland where your, your family are, Sandra, and the lady, it might be the pastor at the church, kept on describing God's love. And she was just, she's got the loveliest accent anyway, but she just kept saying, isn't God sweet? Isn't he good? And I just thought, I want to know that love that comes more than from the head. But really, you know, she was really stirred by this love. And I asked God in that moment, I want to know that love. I want to feel it. I want to really experience this. Um, And I feel that from that time, I really have had that fresh revelation that goes more than just, I know that God is love, to this is God who is deeply, passionately wanting to fight for me, wanting to lift me up, wanting to rescue And that is my prayer as we talk through this through this morning, that if this is just in your head, that this is actually something that needs to be felt and experienced and known. And that's what makes us compelled to share it. A biblical linguist scholar described the word, his name's William Mounts, described Hesed as one of the richest, most theologically insightful terms in the Old Testament. And I think that's because it reveals so much about God's character at the depth of his love. And it tells us about his intention in his union. Exodus 34 is central to the heart and the character and the nature of God. He says, I am abounding in hesed. But not only that, we also see that he's abounding in faithfulness. And the word for faithfulness used here is emet. And it's used in various forms through the Old Testament in the same way as love is. And it can be translated in lots of different ways to truth, consistent, faithful, reliable, fidelity, steadfast. In fact, one of the meanings of emet, or one of the ways it can be translated, is where we get the word of amen from. And we might say amen quietly at the end of a prayer. We might have, uh, you know, some people wanting to shout that out as we as we preach. Um, I've always fancied going to a very Pentecostal church where everybody's shouting amen at every word. So feel free if you want to get Pentecostal on me today. But however we say that word, what we are saying is, I agree. I mean, I can get behind that. In fact, I went to visit a friend in Sheffield um, who'd got somebody in her church that would just say, that's the Bible. Every time they agreed with a preacher, even if it wasn't the Bible, they'd just be saying, that's the Bible, which was very confusing. But what you're saying, you know, whether you shout it out or whisper it quietly or say it in your head, he's saying, I'm giving a pledge of support for this. I can get behind this. I agree. I come into union with this. And that is what God is saying about us. He's saying, I am wholeheartedly, faithfully committed to making a covenant with you. I started this at the beginning and I have not changed. I will always be faithful. I will always be behind you. It's more than cheerleading. He's saying, this is something that I am committing to. I can be counted on. And in Hebrew, the word of emet, you can see the three letters. Hebrew is read backwards left to right, and we can see these three letters. So at the end, what we'd see is the one that looks a bit like an N. Very good. I haven't seen my slides, but I'm now seeing them. So we see Aleph, and then Mem, and then Tav. And what is interesting is that these are the three three letters from the Hebrew alphabet, which are the first, the middle, and the last. And what I think, you know, this is a picture of God's faithfulness. He is with us from the beginning. He is with us in the middle, and he's with us to the end. He's infinite and his faithfulness is unending. 
And in Hebrew, when you bring two words together, the love and the faithfulness, it's what's called a hendiadus, which means that they don't stand apart from each other. They're more than just they would be on their own. But actually, it becomes stronger. It becomes something that's really complete. So God's love is his faithfulness. And God's faithfulness is his love. They can't be separated. You can't have the God of love who is not faithful. And you can't have a faithful God that's not loving. The two have to be together. So God says, my name is love. I am love. But as an extension of that love, I am faithful. It's not just an emotion or a feeling. It's an active verb. It's an action. So when you bring love and faithfulness together, it means it's not a passive love. It's a love that pursues us, that shakes us, that comes after us. And that doesn't give up on us. Hesed and Emmet are about God's loyalty, how he never abandons his people. He's faithful to the bitter end, no matter what the cost. And he has made a covenant with us, a promise, a vow that's not going to be broken. When we see God's Hesed and Emmet, his loving devotion, we see that this is something that is with us through thick and thin, through the most despairing of times and the best times. As an example of this, looking at the book of Lamentations. Now, you might not expect me to pick on Lamentations when we're talking about love and faithfulness because it's not the most jolly of books, not really a, one of those ones that you want to use as a pick-me-up if you're having a bad day. It's, and the reason why it might be a bit discouraging is because it's all about Israel rejecting God and breaking the covenant with and serving other gods. And a real the real tragedy is that God has allowed them to be punished by the Babylonians. And I think Paul might have shared last week that, you know, the God who is slow to anger, sometimes that means he just removes the protection. So actually what happened, there was a natural consequence of their of them walking away from the covenant. What then happened was then they were overruled by the Babylonians. So as you read through Lamentations, you see all this brokenness and mourning for Israel. But despite how desperate this is, the book itself is really a creative work of art because each verse starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So it works like an acrostic. And if you study the book, you see it all intertwines. And there's five chapters and right slap bang in the middle, exactly halfway through the book, we read, the Lord shows compassion. So great is his abundant loving devotion. This is the hesed. This is the same word that's used here. So it's in Lamentations 3.32, if you wanted that reference. And it's so awesome that these people are absolutely despairing. They're in this really bleak situation. But they can still see that God's abundant loving devotion is with them. And God says, you may have forsaken me. You may have rejected me, turned away, broken the covenant. But I have not forsaken you. I am faithful. I am Hesed and Emmet. I love you beyond what you have deserved, what you earn. And though there is grief, I will show you compassion. So Lamentations is a painful song of woe and regret and finding themselves in this insurmountable mess. But it's also a song of hope that's what's insurmountable for us is not for God. His mercy, his hesed, his, the undeserved grace that's beyond our imagination stretches even into those dark places. His character is a loving father who rescues and redeems. And God began all things with a promise, with a plan and with a commitment to Adam and Eve. 
And their names literally are translated as humanity and life. So God had a purpose to live in relationship in full union with humanity and life from the beginning. And he's not thrown off by mankind's mess or sin that separates us from him. He did not reject us or abandon us, and he will not now. What he did in that garden was he made an alternative space separate from the garden of eternal life as a mercy to us, as an act of compassion. He was moved by this hesed, a love that is undeserved and compels action. And he made a new environment where we could live, all the while making a way for us to be drawn back closer to him and also to draw others to him. He did not give us an eternal life sentence separate from him. As Sally Lloyd-Jones puts it in the storybook Bible, God couldn't let his children live forever, not in such pain, not without him. He gave us an opportunity to live a life where we would be hopefully reunited with him and and unite others for eternity. And in the early Old Testament, early in the Old Testament, we see him choose a nobody, Abram, um, an elderly, infertile, pagan desert wanderer to carry the promise of a different future and a connection back to God. He makes a covenant promise with Abraham. He says, come and follow me and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. The covenant is longer than that, but it continually uses the phrase, I will, through the promise. And it's covenant language. If you think of wedding vows, it's a guarantee. As the Nelson New Illustrated Bible Dictionary says, it's an agreement between two people or two groups that involves promises on a part, on the part of each other to each other. So God makes a promise to Abraham and to all generations. And it's a covenant that is actually threefold. It doesn't just involve those two. But it begins, like all things, with God. He will do the hard work. He will meet us more than halfway. He will recreate. He will restore. So first of all, it involves God. Secondly, it involves one man to commit to this. And then the batter moves on to us, the world, to respond and to turn and follow. But the covenant starts with God. God's emet, his faithful covenant, is fueled by hesed. A covenant should be equally committed to and invested in by both parties. You know, in a wedding, obviously the husband and wife are both committed to the marriage, which is obviously symbolised at that point of the wedding. But obviously it creates problems later on if you haven't both got that same commitment. Again, if two neighbours wanted to make a deed over land, both would have to look at the document, sign it, agree to it and keep to it. And there are penalties if a covenant is ignored by one party. And those penalties are always taken up with the party that, that falls out. But we see through history that God not only starts his co- this covenant with his faithful love, but he carries it on. And contrary to what, what we might expect, he doesn't rely on us. It's motivated by the enormity of God's love for us, but it continues and exists even without us turning to follow. Often people think that we have the ability to walk further and further away from God, that our actions and our disobedience stretch out this space between us and God. But actually, in reality, God is always pursuing us. He is always hunting us down. He is always on our heels. So when we turn back to him, we don't have to walk that aching distance to go back. But he is right there behind us and beside us. 
And this is because of his covenant love. He's taken all the responsibility. And this is illustrated through the way that the covenant was made. It's a bit of a strange story. If you've read Genesis 15, you might have skipped past it and just thought, well, that's a bit odd. There's lots of bits of the Bible that are like that, though. But when we understand it, actually, it kind of becomes slightly less odd. But a covenant was symbolized in these times with walking through a passageway made of dead animals. So they would sacrifice the animals, cut them in half, and put half of the animal on each side of the pathway. And then both parties, as an agreement to each other of saying, yes, we're going to commit to this covenant, would walk through this pathway. And what it symbolized is, if you break break this covenant, then you will end up like these animals. You will, you know, I will harm you, I will hunt you down and do the worst to you. And so God commands Abraham to gather some animals and to, to make this, to go through this ritual. And so he sacrifices the animals, lays them out on the path. But then instead of them walking together, Abraham falls into a really deep sleep and visualizes God as the image of a smoking fire walking through alone. And what this shows is that this covenant rests solely on God's shoulders. He is saying, I will not hold your life to ransom if you break this covenant with me. Instead, he was saying, he is saying, I am willing to be the one that sheds blood if this bond is broken. This covenant that promises rescue and redemption will definitely, surely, completely, undoubtedly happen at any cost to God. And of course, we do know the bigger picture, that God continually kept that covenant. And if you know how we talk with the children and the youth about God's big story, we see how this all fits together. God made us to love and his love was broken. If you're not familiar with God's big story, it was advertised in the in the uh, notices there. There's an information evening. I'd really encourage you to go to it. It's such an amazing resource and tool that we use with the children, we use in schools, and we use uh, encourage families to use at home. So that's on the 23rd of March, a little plug on behalf of Kate there. But, you know, God's big story tells us that actually we're more than just in this moment. There is a bigger picture here. And so we see sort of through the, through the Bible, generation after generation, making a mess, getting into the worst, the most sordid of stories of idolatry and incest and murder. And in Deuteronomy, Moses says, there is something wrong with our hearts. You know, they want to obey God, but they keep getting it wrong. Now, I'm sure at some point in our lives, if not today, we could all say, there is something wrong with our hearts. However much we try, we cannot get this right in our own strength. And into the New Testament, we see the, the story of redemption. We see that Jesus comes to make a new covenant, one that's not, again, dependent on our works, but on God's grace. God continues to want to partner with us, to be uh, just like in the beginning. We were created, remember, to be in relationship with him. And he still deeply desires for, for us to be joined with him, to have a purpose through him. And so through Jesus, he makes that way. And Jesus is the real embodiment of Hesed and Emmet. John, at the very start of the gospel, directly quotes Exodus 34 when he says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. This is who his whole body was, his whole personality, his whole character. That is the character of God. He couldn't be anything else. And later, when Jesus prays, he says, I've revealed your character and made your name known before them. He came to embody this, this character to show us what this looks like. We get to see love and faithfulness in the flesh. A sacrifice 
both through his, his life and his death, that fulfills the covenant and a promise through his resurrection. Jesus takes all of our failure, generations of broken covenants, promises that were not seen through, ignorance or deliberate refusal to go his way, and he nails it to the cross. He wipes it clean. This is his grace. This is his hesed. This is the covenant being fulfilled. His faithfulness, emet. And Yahweh, God, made a promise when Israel failed, he would be faithful. When Abraham failed, God was faithful. Even before when Adam failed, God was faithful. And I want you to hear today that when we fail, God is faithful. He has made an agreement with you, whether you know it or not, and he will keep that agreement with you, whether you will or not. The agreement to be loving, to be faithful, to rescue and redeem. And this is his character. This is who he says he is and who he proves to be through the millennia. And he cannot change. As Paul writes to Timothy, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. He cannot be anything other than his character. How does he start Exodus 34? It says, I am. He cannot be anything other than what he says he is. And there are times in our lives when it doesn't feel like this. Times when we feel abandoned, when things don't work out, when prayers aren't answered, when we feel distant, when we feel there's a wall between us and God. And Paul said last week, sometimes we can find ourselves in a mess because of natural result of our choices. But sometimes we're in pain or physically, emotionally broken for some reason. And actually that's just a result of the brokenness that we have on, in this world. We are not yet in heaven. We are on earth. We do not live in this eternal place that God has created for good. There are other things going on that are out of our control. And we can, we can say, we want the, you know, in the vineyard we say the now and the not yet. We want God to break through every time. And sometimes it's the not yet. Sometimes we do not see that and we don't know why. And we can say, well, God, where is your faithfulness? And where is your love in those moments when you don't break through? When the person that you've prayed for, for cancer, with, not for cancer, with cancer for years, and then they die. Or, you know, your child is getting bullied at school and actually things seem to get worse, not better. There are times when we just go, God, I don't understand. And, you know, we can focus on these situations and become overwhelmed and say, where are you, God, in this? And we need to know that, that God's promises can't be reduced to our circumstances. He cares so deeply about the minutiae of our, our lives, but he's not restricted to those details. This covenant sits outside of this and covers us completely. His, his covenant promise to Abraham wasn't, I will come and bless you and make your life easy. I will make everything go to plan. That's not the I will covenant that he made. So God's love and faithfulness is not fleeting and it's not dependent on us or our situation. It's not dependent on our mood or our works or how much we do or don't do, how much we read the Bible or pray or fast. It is not dependent on any of those things. He is and always will be Hesed and Emmet. He is loving and, and faithful and he will not change. And as we soak in this, you know, I think almost we, we, as we try to absorb this truth, it's like sitting in a hot bath. Now that would be awkward in this room. Um, so don't visualize that too much, but it, you know, we just have to soak in this truth and know it. But also, you know, there's a bit of a, a challenge there as well. We've said several times through this series, 
that we want to, you know, as, as God's children, we get to actually not just see this character in God, but hope for that fruit in our own lives. I know from having small children that they too easily pick up on our character traits, come out and say things that we say, whether that's good or bad. Often, you know, catch, catch yourselves out by them saying things that you think, oh, really, do I sound like that? But actually, as God's children, you know, we get to inherit his character. And if we're to be kingdom carriers and image bearers and imitators of Christ and children of God, then we have to carry his kingdom. We have to bear his image. We have to choose that. We have to choose to imitate Christ. And we have to act like his children. These are things that we have a decision to make and we have to actively partake in. Yes, we get to naturally inherit his character, but to work out that character, it takes our commitment and are saying yes each day to partner with these things. John Marcoma says, God will put you to rights so you can put the world to rights. You know, we, we get to actually an opportunity in this world to make a difference. You know, Jesus was one man who absolutely is God and had the character of God, and we got to see that. But actually then that was passed on through the Holy Spirit so that we all have the opportunity to carry that. So are we abounding in loving faithfulness? Do we reach out to others who don't deserve it? Do we lift their feet out of the muddy pit and set them on solid ground? If you've got a friend that's got into debt because of poor choices, but you feel that God's just given you a nudge to help them out financially, do we say, I don't think I want to do that because, you know, they didn't make the best choices? Or do we show that loving faithfulness and follow God's lead on that? and bless them regardless of whether they deserve it or not? Do we help out the mum at school who has clearly taken on too much by working lots of jobs and juggling lots of things and say, hey, I'm going to pick your kid up one day from school for you so that you can just have a break and so that you don't have to pay for childcare that day? Or, you know, can I help you out in, in some way? Well, easily we could say, she hasn't made the best choices. I wouldn't have done it like that. Where do we sit? in terms of loving faithfulness? Do we want justice when it only feels just and right? You know, thinking back to saying it's, it's letting a prisoner out of, out of prison before their sentence is served. It feels wrong, you know, but that is God's loving kindness. He sets us free when we don't deserve it. And we're happy for that for ourselves, aren't we? We want God's loving kindness for us. We want his faithfulness for us. But when we're challenged to give that, to give that grace to others, that's hard. That's really hard. You know, are we stirred up to fight for justice and compassion and cry out for our friends and neighbours to be inconvenienced, to go and share that love with them? We want, really, really want people to know how deep and wide and far-stretching the love of God is. Are we faithful? Can we be counted on? Can we be trustworthy? Do we keep confidence? Or do we like to share what's been shared with us? You know, maybe in the guise of, can we pray for such and such um, and just share all of their business? Are we faithful? Are we trustworthy? If we say that we're going to do something, if we say we're going to serve, do we turn up, even if it means getting out of bed early and actually we've had a really busy week? Can we be counted on? Can we be depended on in a changing culture? You know, when there's so many things in the media, so many things in the workplace, so many things happening around us that we uh, have to kind of fit in with, 
Can we depend on God's truth and see that work out in our own lives? Are we deeply rooted in Christ and in God's word so that we don't blow this way and that way as social norms want to bend us? Hesed and Emmet are characteristics that take time to grow and to develop, but they bear so much fruit. And we, we can't just to decide to emulate God in these areas Say, yes, that, that sounds good, and hope that our character will just change. You know, go to sleep tonight, and tomorrow we're going to be full of that God-given love and faithfulness. Yes, if we partner with God, he does a lot of the work for us. He can change our character. But also, we have to partner with that. We have to, we have to commit and dedicate time and patience and sometimes go through pain to develop that character. In an instant world, I have to agree that with John Marcoma when he says there are no shortcuts to life. You can't microwave character. It's more like a tree that grows slowly, one season after another. And the best trees are the ones that stay rooted and just keep at it. We saw a few weeks ago with these terrible storms of trees coming down. But the trees that stayed rooted were the ones where their roots were deep deep in the soil. They were really stuck. I don't know about you, but I want to be like that. I want to grow my roots deep and to see then these things blossoming. But if my roots are in the wrong place, then I'm going to bear the fruit of those things. So we need our roots to be deep in the right place, in God's truth, and to be hungering after these characteristics, not just for our blessing, but for others. So let's stand as we respond to this.